Welcome to episode 32 of the Endurance Asia podcast and this week we're joined by Nathan Fave, the team captain of Team New Zealand and Team Seagate now called Avaya, the most dominant adventure racing team ever to grace the sport and that's expedition style adventure racing so um, multi-day multi-discipline and we're catching up with Nathan uh, immediately after the uh, the airing of the Eco Challenge world toughest race that's gone live on Amazon Prime so we uh, it's an absolute honor to get Nathan on on the podcast he really is one of the very top endurance athletes in the world like just an amazing pedigree having mountain bike for New Zealand at sort of Olympic level and uh, and just uh, unbelievable all disciplines of, of endurance sports you know everything from coast to coast to uh, the Adventure Race World Series and has just been one of the most dominant dominant athletes within endurance sports over the last 20 years um really good chat like so good to hear his perspective like unbelievably humble guy uh, given his pedigree and given his ability and and uh, and how good his team is that he uh, that he races with uh, we do get deep into the the eco challenge which went ahead last year um, but the first half of it the first 40 minutes is uh, is kind of talking what he's been up to um last year and and since the eco challenge uh, and then we do get into the race itself so for those of you that haven't uh, watched the, uh, the watched all episodes there will be a, there's a, a few spoiler alerts from like 30 40 minutes in um, but highly recommend you go and uh, if you haven't got Amazon Prime go and get yourself a free month's trial check it out like if you've never really thought about getting into adventure racing before if you are a trail runner or a cyclist or a, or a mountain biker and have never really thought about combining the disciplines I guarantee this will pique your interest and will uh, will get you hooked um, so yeah with that here is Nathan Fave tell the truthful story if they ever ask Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Nathan, welcome to the Endurance Asia podcast. Thank you. Yeah, uh, good to be here and good to be chatting. Oh, mate, I'm so... Uh, it's it's not often you get to... Uh, get to meet your uh, your heroes i'm going to sound like a complete sycophant on this um on, on this interview but um yeah i've been like watching your career for years mate and um we are like one of the top adventure racers if not the top adventure racers in the world but there was a there was a quote from bear grills on their recent eco challenge um of saying you're know, the, the the michael jordan of adventure racing which i think that was probably to play up to the uh, to the american audience but um but i think it was bang on yeah, I, I mean, I know what he's trying. I know what he's saying there. I mean, to be honest, I find that stuff a little bit embarrassing. Um, you know, I think comparing adventure racing to any sort of mainstream sport is a little bit of a. I mean, yeah, it's a little bit of a stretch. But I, I take his point in that. I think he's just trying to tell the audience that, you know, that 
yeah, these guys are actually the top of their sport. And uh, what you're watching here is about as good as it'll get. Um, and I, I, I mean, obviously he was mentioning me in that quote, but really I think that it's really our team that he's talking about and, uh, and, and the teams we're racing against, you know, like, um, yeah. you know, it was just a legit race, I think is what, what he was trying to say. So, uh, yeah, I wish yeah. I was. Yeah, you'll be. Yeah, I'm sure you'll be a hell of a lot richer. <laughs> you chose the wrong sport yeah, exactly. in that respect. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I wish I was the Michael Jordan of. Uh, yeah, but anyway. Uh, um, yeah. Oh no! I, you'll be, I think you're being modest as well, mate. I mean, we I, we could spend a couple of hours now talking about your your racing CV, which spans the past like 20 years of podiums ac- across the world. But we're, what I'm really keen to cover is um is the the Eco Challenge, obviously, which um which is just being aired on Amazon Prime. Um, and so there's going to be a few spoiler alerts for um for those that haven't seen it already. But yeah. but before we get into that, I suppose it would be good. We we cover all or like the whole breadth of endurance sports here on Endurance Asia, from mountain biking to uh, ocean rowing to adventure racing, which is my personal like probably my favourite sport, and then yeah, mm-hmm. uh, ultra running etc. Um, but obviously the Asia Asia Pacific region as well. So one thing I'd be like interested to find out is like your sort of background of like racing across uh, across asia have you um uh, mm-hmm. i know that you've raced all around the world but like wh- what's been your um your exposure to races in in asia oh well, the first experience racing in asia was quite a long time ago and uh it was pretty mind-blowing actually and i'm not i'm pretty sure i'm going to get this year right if i'm wrong it's only by a year but in 1994 I actually travelled to China uh, for a mountain biking uh, multi-day kind of stage race competition. And we were racing in Sichuan and Chengdu province. And then we did some racing in Beijing. So to be in China wow. in, uh, in the kind of the early 90s, um, especially when I hadn't actually done that much travelling at that point in my life, uh, that was a huge, huge eye-opener, and uh, I loved it. I just loved the contrast between, you know, China back then to what New Zealand was, um, the food, the culture, the scale of things. I mean, I remember being in, uh, sorry, in, in Beijing and riding on the road on my bike with, you know, tens of thousands of other people on bikes. I don't, it's not like that now, but, um, but that was a really, really rich experience for me. And then, because you were uh, you were like, actually racing for New Zealand then, weren't you? Yeah, you you were like yeah. uh, you're like racing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What what happened was is that um, I used to be sponsored by a mountain bike company called Diamondback, and at the time I was one of New Zealand's top um, cross country riders. I was ranked number two, and we qualified for the Olympics. So we were racing, which were in 1996 at Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And uh, what our sponsor did, Diamondback, they were a global mountain bike company who manufactured their bikes in China like most companies do. And so what they said is they created this thing called the Diamondback World Team and they basically went to all the distributors around the world and said, look, the inaugural mountain bike race is going to be on in Atlanta at 96 Olympics. 
why not try, why don't we try and get as many riders on Diamondbacks there as possible? So what they did was, is they went all around the world and they got all the sponsored Diamondback riders and said, hey, what we're going to do is we're going to create a world team. We're going to bring all you guys to China, get to meet all the people that basically run the company. We'll have you guys racing against each other for some promo and just build a concept of this world team where we're actually going to work collaboratively to try and get as many Diamondback riders to that first race at the Olympics. And that was essentially it. That was what it was all about. So, mm. yeah, well, I think it was probably about 30 or 40 international riders went there for this big race from all around the world, but all sponsored by the same bike company. Um, so that's why we have that stuff in yeah. China. Yeah, that was yeah, cool. uh, yeah. I, I remember like hearing the story from you about how you um, – that that because you were you were training for the Olympics in '96, right? And uh, it would have been the first time that mountain biking was uh, was an official Olympic sport. Or in fact, they changed it, right? It was originally supposed to be a showcase, yeah. and then they uh, and then yes. they they um, had it as an official official um, yes. discipline. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, and because of that, I knew I didn't actually get to race in the end because uh, the New Zealand cycling team was already full. So um, that was a bit of a shame. Was that downhill or was that cross country, I guess? Cross country, cross country. Yeah, yeah. I was cross country yeah, yeah. racer. Yeah. And, yeah. and then really since then, I think uh, it's been adventure racing. And I would guess that my next races in Asia were the Mild 7 um, Outdoor Quests. So I raced in Borneo a couple of times in Malaysia. And in Sabah or, or Sarawak? Sabah. Uh, Sabah, yeah couple of years in Sabah and then that race kind of that race stopped around that time and then like many Kiwi athletes I did my time racing in China as part of the stage racing stuff they have there I've done yeah I don't know maybe maybe 10 races in China Wulong and uh, up in Ordos and around the place maybe more than 10 I, I can't remember but that was quite fun but you know as you know they're, they're more stage races and yeah. Um, yeah, we did a race in Malaysia a couple of years ago, uh, just an adventure race there, part of the World Series. So you've done, done a few. Um, over I, the way. You, you, yeah, that's um, and because it's interesting, you know, there was oh, there was quite a long period of, of stage racing in in China for the mm. kind of multi-day, multi-discipline, but it wasn't like expedition style. But the the support, the sport's not really taken off domestically in China, has it? I mean, was it all international teams predominantly when you raced up there? Yeah, mainly. The Chi mainly are internationals racing in China, but they were growing. Like I think, uh, you know, every year there was there was Chinese teams in the races, and they were getting better, you know, as the racing mm. went on. And from what I understand, is the sport is growing there, but it's just probably you know, in relation to all the other things that are growing there. So it's probably hard to sort of gauge how big it's getting because the place is just so massive anyway. Uh, but yeah, yeah I, I think it is, I think it is, I'm you know, growing a bit, so. <laughs> yeah, ultra running and trail running is definitely taken off on the, on yeah, the mainland. Yeah. Um, but there has been a couple of, um, of RWS races in China as well, hasn't there? There was the, is it Atlas Mountains or, um, yes. the, yeah. and they had a, um, they had an initial um, initial race a few years back, and then they had an official one last year but that got cancelled at the like the start line. You didn't go up for that, did you? Yeah, I was there. Yeah. Oh yeah. man. So, yeah, I think how that frustrating was, was that? Oh, 
it was kind of for me or for our team it was so bizarre that it wasn't really that frustrating because it was just kind of this incredible insight into how how kind cultures are and how life in that part of the world is i mean basically some official somewhere in that area up in uh, i'm going to forget the name of the province now but they pretty much just stopped the race and didn't really give any reasons and what was amazing was is that all the chinese people and the chinese organizers pretty much just accepted that as a perfectly normal thing to happen <laughs> whereas um you know if you did that in new zealand or or a lot of other places around the world you know if you're a race director and you just turned up to the start and said hey sorry folks the race is cancelled can't really tell you anymore but um yeah that you know end of story you know and, and to expect everyone just to get up out of their chairs and go home um that wouldn't happen here so so yeah it's kind of for us it was just kind of crazy that this was going on um i mean it was disappointing because obviously we traveled a long way and we were really looking forward to getting out and doing the race because it is an incredible an incredible location but i don't know i think we were just all blown away by just that cultural thing and human behavior yeah the sort of the the, the sort of government the, the kind of hierarchy of china i mean you do they just um they don't sort of question or push back and if uh, if a government official tells you it's not happening they don't um yeah they're not going to no. protest it are they <laughs> no. um, but yeah it does look beautiful up in those Atlay mountains they had a um there was a documentary on on the um on the exp- um the trial race that they did up there it looked, yes. it looked absolutely stunning up there yeah um, yeah but right. yeah we, we've not had much luck in uh, in asia because then obviously we had the um the um the world champs were supposed to be last year um up in uh, in sri lanka which That's obviously right. with the terrorist attacks there so you yeah. you traveled to asia twice last year and didn't manage the race oh i didn't get to sri lanka oh you didn't of so course yeah yeah of course they did they no, cancelled it before no. people traveled there of course yeah, yeah. we were going to go and i was really looking forward to that but uh, no we didn't we didn't get to go to that one so yeah i think that they will um definitely organize uh craig will organize a race back in sri lanka i think he's i think they've planned an amazing route there so yeah i'd love to yeah um love to see it um but you yeah. did get to race uh, last year and uh, and obviously we'll get into the eco challenge but um yeah. but yeah that was almost a year ago mate so what have you been um, what have you been up to for the uh, for the past year since eco challenge has been uh, yeah. yeah have you been keeping it's yourself right. busy gone, yes it's gone really quick eh? like as time does um so i, I so after eco challenge i think it was basically a I probably had a day after I finished the race in Fiji and I had to get back to New Zealand. So I didn't stay around for the the award ceremony and the sort of post-race kind of buffets and things that you often enjoy. Because I had to get back to an event that I organise, which is called the Spring Challenge, a women's adventure race here in New Zealand. So just literally a few days before after Eco Challenge, I was race director in a big race here in New Zealand where we had 480 teams uh, doing a one-day adventure race. So I was pretty much straight, oh, is that, straight into Yeah. Is that teams of two? Teams of three. Three women. Teams of three. You had yeah. 480 teams. You had 1,500 uh, female yeah. r- racing in an adventure race. What, what, what was the sort of format of the race? It is um, whitewater rafting, mountain biking, and hiking. 
but there can be multiple stages because we run, essentially we run a beginner, intermediate and advanced course, which is, well, what we call the three, six and nine hour uh, events, but they're projected winning times. So, you know, yeah, it's essentially, a, well, the course is open for 18 hours um, for teams to finish uh, whatever it is that they've taken yeah. on for that day. Um, so it's been bigger some years. One year we actually took 600 teams, but it was a bit stressful. So we, um, we, we downsized it <laughs> the last yeah. couple of years. Mate, that's crazy. Because, I, I mean, one of the things that I love about, um, about ex- expedition adventure racing, the format of the teams is they have to be mixed teams. I mean, we, we talk a lot about diversity on the podcast and make sure that our guests are representative, mm. but it's a real challenge actually finding women that actually want to go on a like five, six, eight day adventure race i mean mm. it's always um but it, it's i think it's so good that, that enforces mixed teams but it strikes me that in new zealand there's not a problem finding women that are interested in venture racing no no there's not no there's plenty of uh, plenty of women here adventure racing and and because this event that i'm organizing has been going for 14 years now yeah you know, the mm. whole level has come up so i mean new zealand's always had good female venture races, you know, right throughout the history of the sport. But uh, there's, there's, there's plenty of them now. Uh, That's yeah, cool. cool. Yeah. That's really good. And it's good that you've, I mean, you must be, uh, is your race the only sort of like dedicated female like adventure race in, in the world then? Oh, or is there's, there a few there's a of them? I mean, yeah, we started our um, event 14 years ago. And then, you know, since then you get a few other events sort of pop up. I guess it's just the nature of, having something that's successful, you know, other people will copy it and, um, you know, offer similar things. And that's happened a bit. And some of those events have, have sort of just come and gone and some of them have stuck around. Um, but I guess it'd be fair to say that ours is the sort of the premier one, uh, just because it was the first one and it's got that kind of legacy that, that, you know, people want to do that event. Um, that I, it moves to a new location every year within New Zealand. But, um, yeah. you know, people just want to do it. They don't really care where it is. They just want to have that experience. So, so it's pretty cool. I'm sure it's not just the legacy, mate. I'm sure you run a pretty tight ship and make sure it's an amazing experience. That's why yeah, people that's keep right. on that coming is. back, yeah. mate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like we've got a core staff team that are, that, that are awesome and do an amazing job and put a ton of energy into the participants and, you know, just, just to deliver an awesome race, basically. So... So yeah, that, and, and sorry, cool. the name of the race again, Nathan. What's the name the of the spring, race? Spring Challenge, because it's in springtime. Spring ch- yep. Spring Challenge. Yeah. Um, and have you got one in the diary for this year as well? Yeah, we're hoping uh, it's next month. It's always in September, so it's yep. only about five weeks away. Uh, but I'm not sure if you heard, but New Zealand's just had a little spike or resurgence of COVID in Auckland. Yeah. So we're just praying at the moment, the whole country, um, that it doesn't, that it gets contained and we can sort of get back to the, the sort of normality that we've been enjoying for a few months. So, uh, yeah, we'll see yeah. how things go. Yeah. Fingers crossed. I mean, it's uh, yeah, the race season across the across the world has been um, has been impact. Obviously, especially in, like, in the adventure racing, XPD's been um, been pushed back to next year. Godzone's been pushed mm. back to next year. Had you, had you been planning to? I can imagine that you were obviously going to be doing Godzone, but had you been planning or the yeah, team? So, have I... That's right. Yeah. So after after um, the spring challenge events that we ran last year, then I. I'm pretty lucky in that I can schedule my diary that I actually take 
uh, school holidays completely off. So I'll usually, I'll usually basically dedicate sort of at least six weeks, sometimes eight weeks, to just doing stuff with my kids over the summer. And we just go into the mountains and go climbing and go kiteboarding and go rafting and just do adventures back to back. So that's an awesome time. So we basically did that. And then I just started to get back into sort of work and the event stuff. And then, you know, COVID hit New Zealand and we went into, I can't even remember now. I think it might've been six or eight weeks of full lockdown, um, which was through autumn, which is actually pretty nice. <laughs> to be honest, I quite enjoyed it. Um, and then we came out of that and it, had, it just feels like time's just gone by real quick. Um, you know, I was supposed to go and do the World Series race in Malaysia in June. And then in July, I was supposed to go up to Hokkaido and just be a consultant on the new race that, that they ran up there. I think they did run the event race up there in the end, but um, I obviously didn't get to go. And then yeah. we were going to do God's Own in November, but we were also going to race the World Champs in Paraguay in September. So, you know, out of the sort of the four big events I was attending this year, they're all, all cancelled or postponed. Have you still been keeping fit? Have you still been getting your, getting your training blocked in or have you just decided to have a bit of a fallow year and let the body recover? <laughs> no, no, I don't even sort of stop training, to be honest. And, and I, I think that's why I've managed to keep racing for as long as I have because I don't really see it as training. You know, out from a big race like Eco Challenge, about six weeks out, I'll actually get organised and get clear my diary and actually put in you know what I consider to be specific training but the rest of the time I just I'm just out there doing stuff just for just for fun um, just for physical and mental health just because I just love to be out in nature so you know every day I'm usually out doing doing something what does a specific training block look like then six weeks out going into eco challenge what was your what was your diary looking like and how do you go about scheduling it all yeah, well, I, I normally rearrange things so that my workload during that period is pretty minimal. I mean, I can't avoid it, all the work. I can't avoid not working in that period, but I have, do have a lot of flexibility if I'm organised. So, and what I mean by that is, is that I can work in the evenings or I can get up early in the morning and work. I just A lot of it is just event planning. A lot of it's permits and concessions and you know, managing databases and all this kind of stuff. So a lot of it is just office work, uh, mapping, um, course setting. Mm. So, you know, if I want to go for, say, like an eight-hour bike ride during the day, if I get up and work early for three or four hours, then I can go training for the day. And then if I work in the evenings, you know, I can essentially do a normal day's work as well as whatever training I wanted to do. Um, I guess and so you, you said like an eight hour mountain bike ride but would you like with with training for multi-sports would you combine the multi-sports into a day like a like a triathlete would for um, for an Ironman or whatever or would you just have specific training um, uh, training sessions for each discipline each day yeah so I most cases uh, once, once I'm actually training most of the time I would do two disciplines a day so yeah. I would, and they don't necessarily need to be back to back. Um, sometimes they are. Like, for example, sometimes I might go, I actually live at a beach, so I can paddle up to one of our national parks in about an hour. So I can paddle up there with my running gear, leave my boat on the beach, go running, come back and paddle home. So sometimes I'll do those kind of sessions or I might cycle somewhere with my running shoes, 
throw my bike in the trees and go running and then bike back home sort of thing. But often I won't. Often I'll just go out and do, you know, maybe a three or four hour paddling session, come home, do some work, um, do some jobs around the house, have lunch and then go out in the afternoon. I'm generally trying to hit about 30 hours a week in those training weeks. Got you. Um, generally speaking, but some weeks can be a lot bigger uh, if I if I want to get out and do some really long key sessions. Um, you know, you might get up to about a 40-hour week, sometimes even 50 hours. Um, yeah. It depends a bit on the race I'm training for and where I figure feel like I need the most improvement. So... And I can imagine going into Eco Challenge, you knew it was going to be it was going to be a big one. I mean, you knew the distance, six hundred and seventy kilometres. You're gonna and and so on that. Were you looking at the like the higher end, forty to fifty hour week training sessions, and and also were you training with your team at all? Like I, I don't think um, the rest of your team aren't based in Nelson as well, right? Um, mm. No, we're all spread out around the country. Um, we we sometimes train together, but. Very rarely, um, it's, it's just more random. If you just happen to be in the same town as one of your teammates, you might hook up and go for a run or a paddle or something. Um, Sophie and I have done quite a lot of training over the years because she used to live in Nelson, where I live, or in that region, and she's actually moving back here next month. So I imagine building up awesome. to a race, you know, we'll be able to kind of get together for some of the longer kind of sessions um, that can just make them a little bit more interesting and fun. But um, most of the time, we just do our own thing. And, and I think we're all busy. We've all got kids. And sometimes just that extra logistic of having to meet someone at a particular time to do something can just, can just eat time up that you don't necessarily have. So, um, I'm laughing because yeah. it's not as if, uh, as if logistics is ever a real challenge for you, mate. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I get what you mean. Just getting everyone's uh, diaries in time. Uh, so that kind of leads into then that you um, getting the team together for, for Eco Challenge, right? So first time it's been run since 2002. How many Eco Challenges have you done? Uh, that was my third one. So third, I okay. did New Zealand in 2001 and Fiji 2002 so got you yeah. Um, yeah, I, did I did have a couple of opportunities to race in some earlier eco challenges but they around around that time there's a lot of racing going on and they sort of clashed with each other so um, yeah so you had to sort of pick and choose your racing a, a little bit more um, around that time and I, I sort of chose some other races but uh, to answer your question, I've done yeah. three equals now. Yeah, and so, so this was, it's interesting they brought the the first time bringing it back. Um, and obviously Mark Burnett was the uh, original sort of, uh, like not found, like founder of Eco Challenge that, that decided to resurrect the format. And um, I, I remember the invite going out and what was your, like, I mean, obviously you were like straight away, we're definitely going to be getting back on board with this. Or was there any like deliberation about pulling a team together for it? Oh, we, we, were, we were definitely quite keen. To be honest, um, we didn't actually uh, jump, at, jump at it uh, when it first came out. At first, I was kind of like, oh, I wasn't sure if it was true. Uh, I just didn't quite understand why they were coming back. <laughs> and um, once it was sort of apparent that it was real, 
um, that they were coming back. I, I guess I was just a little bit unsure as to how much of it was race or had they evolved it more towards some, I don't know, obstacle course race or had they changed it more to some sort of TV show. So we actually didn't really do anything. We, were, we, we kind of, I guess it was my lead, but I, I kind of said to the team, look, the guys at Eco know who we are. They they know enough about the sport. I mean, Kevin Hodder, um, the race director, he you know he's he's got his finger on the pulse. I said, there's no point in us sort of going to too much effort applying to, for this race because they'll either they'll know already if they want us there or not. <laughs> and if they want us there, then they'll ask us to come. If they don't want us there, then you know there's no point in applying. So we kind of just sat on our hands really. And um, just waited to see what happened, and then and then yeah, I got a phone call one day from Kevin and just said, "Hey, look, what's up? Are you guys racing or not?" And I just said to him, "Well, is it a real race? You know, what's the deal?" And he goes, "Absolutely." And I was like, "Cool, okay. Well, sounds good. Let's do it." So, yeah. And when you say you weren't sure whether it was or, or what their reasoning behind it, what were were you sort of thinking that it might, you know, it wouldn't have the same essence of the original Eco Challenge? It might just be, yeah. What was your what was your thinking? Yeah, I guess I just sort of figured, I mean, at the time, I didn't really know, but I, what was sort of was going on in my head was is that why after 17 years would you just bring back the same event? Um, I, I just, I guess maybe I was just a bit too sceptical. I thought there's got to be some twist or... Hidden uh, agenda you know, behind it. Yeah, maybe maybe team, you know, team, team members are going to get voted off as the race goes on or... I don't know, you know, I just can't, yeah, yeah. Oh, there must, surely there's got to be a modern kind of twist to it all. Um, uh, I, I had a feeling with like Bear, Bear Grylls involved, you'd be like forced to like drink your own piss or like eating some <laughs> dodgy like uh, <laughs> dodgy insects or uh, or yeah, yeah, yeah. some. So, but but it wasn't that way, right? It was it was yeah. a classic sort of expedition adventure race format. You know, it was the it was the yeah. legit um, format, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And so then it was started pulling the team together once they called you and um, and Sophie, you reached back out to the you'd raced with many years in the past, but she sort of had a um, had a few years out. Mm. Yeah, so Sophie, um, she she was I mean she was in the team obviously well, she is the team in many ways, and she was supposed to race with us. Well, the team was supposed to race the world champs in Australia in 2016. And then she pulled out of that because she got pregnant with her first child. And then That's the Townsville one, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Shoalhaven. Shoalhaven, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so we, got, we got Joe, a friend of ours, to take Sophie's place that year. And then the following year, the race, the world champs were in Wyoming. And I didn't race that year myself um and then Sophie was kind of busy with her with her daughter so she couldn't race and then um the following year was Reunion Island and Sophie was actually planning to race that race as well um but she actually got pregnant again with another child so she didn't race that race and, and that was fine like we were happy for her to have a family you know that was awesome but I guess her spot on the team was always kind of reserved and then yeah. so Joe, who had raced with the team a couple of years, essentially just subbing in for Sophie, um, yeah, she broke her ankle just before Reunion Island. So that's where we got another friend of ours, Fleur Pawsey, to race yeah. uh, Reunion with us. 
And then last year in Sri Lanka, um, yeah, Worlds were in Sri Lanka, and Sophie was supposed to be back in the team for that because her, her kids are old oh, enough yeah. now. Um, so I guess, I guess in terms of reforming the team, it sort of feels to me like the core structure of the team didn't change. Um, it just that, it just that you know, <laughs> Sophie was kind of juggling trying to do some racing and fit in starting a family around it. So uh, we're just lucky that Eco Challenge happened. Yeah. Her second born was just it was just nine months old when you raced, right? So um, yeah, well, I mean that's just amazing, like the how quickly she got back to race fitness, and I mean once when you've been racing for that many years, but just yeah. so inspirational for 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 new mums actually to realise mm. that they can mm. how quickly they can yeah. get back to to match fitness. Yeah, well, she actually squeezed in a coast to coast in between her two children as oh, well. Did she? And very nearly won that. Um, like she got second. Uh, she was first New Zealand. Wow. Um, and that was on on very minimal training. Um, so yeah, no, she's she's uh, yeah, she's a pretty talented athlete. And and the rest of your team, you say uh, yeah, you say like the teams around her almost. I think the the one sort of core to any successful expedition adventure racing or any adventure racing or orienteering team is your nav guy. Right. And mm. you've literally got the best in the business. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We've got the, uh, we've got the sort of the freak freakish um, navigator, Chris Vaughan. Um, yeah. We're very lucky in our team. I mean, we all three of us, uh, Chris, Joe and I are um, strong navigators and um, any one of us could could navigate our way through you know these races but Chris is another level when it comes to uh, his accuracy but what makes Chris exceptional is the speed that he can navigate at Um, you know it's just phenomenal Um, there's just the pace that he can go through a course you know, just, just by glancing at the map and sometimes old maps with very little detail. Uh, he just sees things in a map that, you know, most people won't see or if they do see that much detail, it'll take them a lot longer to interpret it. Um, so, yeah, Chris is, a, Chris is a huge reason why our team does so well. Yeah, that's pretty unique to have three people that could all be the primary navigator in a team in a yeah in mm. in an adventure racing team. Um, and so, would you be the because you as the captain of the team? Would you be the the co or the co pilot? And then yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah 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 yeah. Uh, yeah and then right. what are like who who who's overly res- overall responsible for logistics? Because I mean, with these kind of adventure races, the sort of making sure that everything's in order, the logistics and everything is probably just as, in, well, mm. not just as important now, but it's key in terms, if you're looking at sort of time saving is really important. Who takes up that mm. mantle? Oh, that'll definitely be me. Uh, I think, I guess just as, as a person, you know, logistics is actually a big part of my job. So, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of managing, you know, with the events and stuff. I mean, that's what I've been working on today, you know, creating an event with logistics that are going to, involve 480 teams so going to a race where i only have to manage one team is pretty easy uh, <laughs> by comparison so it's just natural that i step into that role and, and i do enjoy it as well to be honest um you know I, I quite like that kind of level of just just finding efficiencies and things and and doing that and it also just allows my teammates to focus on the things they're good at as well so you know yeah. Stu, um, Stu's a backup navigator so 
he can just kind of focus on supporting Chris. Um, you know, Sophie picks up a few extra roles on the team. Um, you know, just just with her sort of skills skill set as well. Uh, but yeah, I, I guess we just all contribute to that to that whole that, yeah. that makes the team. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's such a solid team. So then going into um, going into the Eco Challenge, you obviously knew that you were in uh, in with a you were going to be at the pointy end as you are for every single race. But we're looking around you at the other teams that um, that landed in Fiji. Like who were you looking at? Of like right, got my eye on them. We're going to have to make sure that we keep in front of them from the from the get go. Hmm. Yeah, so it's a good question, and I, I don't know if everyone sort of believes me when I say this, but as a team, um, we actually spend virtually no time really analysing the field or talking much at all about the teams. In fact, I can't even remember one conversation in Fiji where we actually sat down and talked about the other teams in the race. Um, we might talk about people as friends, you know, like, oh, hey, have you seen Mike or have you seen Aaron or, you know, someone from someone that we know from around the world. But we don't, you know, I, I think somewhere along the line, our team has developed this culture where we become very self-focused on getting ourselves through a course as best we can. So on the ground in Fiji, really what we're trying to do is absorb as much information as we can about what the course is going to be like. And then just really figuring out and focusing our energy into how we're going to get through the course as best we can. And, you know, like I, as team captain and, and sort of the main strategist, like I am aware of the teams that are there. You know, like I know that I, you know, these, this team could be quite good on the water or these guys could be good on land or these guys are going to be good on bikes. And then I might, I will often think, yeah, but that team is not going to be good in this or they got, this is their weakness. This is their strength. So I will do a little bit of, I guess, almost sort of data analysis and go, if any of these teams are going to beat us, how, how are they going to do it? You know, are they going to outwalk us, out paddle us, out navigate us? Um, and generally speaking, most races, there will be no team that I think is going to outrace us. So I kind of think, well, the only way, the only way we're going to get beaten is if we do some really dumb things that, um, that lose us the race. <laughs> so we have, to, we have to be mindful about doing that. Or we, or we have some bad luck, um, which, you know, other teams, other teams sometimes have. Um, yeah. You know, and it can always happen over seven days of racing, yeah, like uh, right. either doing dumb things or having bad luck. And actually, that takes us to the very start of the race. So um, <laughs> um, you, you kick off. Um, there's 66 teams that set off on outriggers. Um, you're kind of like, it would look like you're in the middle of the pack going out in the, in the outrigger. And then um, mm. there's always, I mean, I don't know whether it needs to be dramatized for TV a little bit, but there's one boat which flipped. In fact, I think there's a couple of boats that flip early yeah. on. One, one of which was the uh, was Team New Zealand. Um, and yes, there's you yes. guys bobbing about in the water. And uh, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what the hell happened? And, uh, and what was going through your mind then? <laughs> So I guess you're not going to believe me if I say we did it on purpose because we were hot. We wanted to have a swim. <laughs> <laughs> you just wanted to like, you, I, bet, I bet you got paid a bit extra by, uh, um, by Mark Burnett just to like, okay, yeah, let's make right. this exciting. <laughs> we 
We said, uh, this is the only way we're going to get on TV, guys. We wait for the camera to be on us and we'll flip it over. So, so what happened was is that, um, well, first of all, the boats were lined up in numerical order. Oh, no, no, sorry, they weren't. They weren't lined up in numerical order. As a, a registration, they had a, a kind of a jackpot where you basically chose a number and they didn't tell you what the significance of the number was. So turns out we were the last team to register. We flew in um, late. We, all of us decided to train at home for as long as we could and just get the last flight into Fiji. So we turned up... Um, we were the last team to arrive. So we just got given a number. We didn't get to choose one. It turned out that that number was essentially pole position of where you started on the billy billy rafting. So if you, if you chose number one, you were basically the furthest downstream. And if you chose number 66, you were furthest upstream. I think we were number 61 or 62. So we were basically one of the last teams um, up the river. So our first sort of challenge was just to navigate through all the carnage and all the boats and things. So, um, and we're also really mindful of just looking after the boat. You know, we're kind of like, Farah, these things are not super strong. Last thing we actually want is someone to crash into us and damage our boat. The other thing was, is that, and, and this is, um, yeah, this was the same for all teams, but we didn't actually get to paddle those boats before the race. So it turns out that they were way tippier than what I expected. Like I've spent quite a lot of time paddling normal outrigger canoes, but these things were really quite tippy. And um, when we had the race briefing, oh sorry, the briefing about how to use the boats, one of the guides had told us it'd be worthwhile strapping your packs to the outrigger, to the armor, just to put a bit more weight on the outrigger. But I was kind of thinking, oh no, you know, they, the boat can't be that unstable. We'll be right. We'll just chuck our boats and <laughs> we'll just chuck our packs in the boat. Well, yeah, it turns out they are real tippy. And um, and I think what happened when we tipped over is is that Stu was at the, we were trying to just avoid a collision, um, just change our angle. A little like we're going to collide with another couple of boats. And I was steering from the back, and Stu was steering from the front. And I think both of us, just the force of both of us steering, um, was just enough to flip the boat over, and it went super fast. So after that, we were like, oh, okay. Um, we didn't have any problems after that, <laughs> but it was just like, now we know how tippy this boat is. Um, we need to be a bit more sensible. But um, it was it was all right. I mean, I was just glad we didn't lose any gear. You know, that was the main thing. Yeah. Yeah. You managed to sort of get through the field um, pretty well, though, after that point, right? You flipped it and managed to sort of uh, nav navigate through the um, through all of the other other boats and yeah, uh, yeah. and get towards the... Because uh, that... that, that um, that initial outrigger was uh, there was a good twenty. Yeah, what was the distance of it? Do you remember? No, I, I don't. I yeah. think it. Might, I think it was yeah. probably twenty twenty five k's out to the island or something. Yeah. maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe more. I can't remember, but yeah, we, we just paddled. You know, like we were just kind of like early days of the race. You know, we we also yeah. felt that it was almost inevitable that we were going to get hit by some dark zones early in the race. So. We kind of figured that you don't need to be leading this race. You just need to be near the front. You don't want to be in a situation where teams in front of you get through a dark zone and you get stopped. So we kind of felt, well, we need to get back towards the front of the race, but we don't need to be leading. But as it turned out, uh, a combination of just our, our paddling power and Chris's navigation, we actually ended up pretty close to the front quite quick because we just took a shorter line um, when, we, when we exited into the open ocean. So... 
Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. There, there was a team, the team that came in first off the um, off the outriggers. I think it was Bend Racing, it was an American team. Yeah, they, they had a big old dude, which uh, which obviously was a good paddler. <laughs> But fuck me, did he burn himself out? Like watching the show there, like they literally had, he must be about 16 to 18 stone. And they, they had to like drag him through the through yeah. the next uh, part of the course. That was, uh, 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 I, I'm actually like impressed they, um, yeah, how he came back from that. But that was a, uh, yeah, classic sort of burnout early in a race, like the, the testosterone at the beginning of the start yeah. line and pushing too hard. So what was your strategy going in? I mean, I mean, like, were you thinking of like not pacing too fast to begin with? Just uh, yeah, what was the kind of plan and strategy? You talked about the dark zone. What was your sleep strategy going into it? And um, from the beginning, mm. well, the for memory, uh, we had a compulsory sleep card. I think we had to have that was a weird number. I think it was eleven hours of mandatory sleep or something like that. I can't can't remember, but we did have to take mandatory sleep. And um, you can only take that at certain places. So, um, so we knew we were going to get some sleep, but we didn't know, we didn't really know how long the race was going to be because they only gave us stages um, to the next camp. So, you know, we didn't, we didn't really know. Uh, well, obviously they gave us some idea of the distance, but that doesn't really help us that much um, when we're sort of strategizing. Because normally really at the beginning us, of expedition race, they give you the hub, the maps for the entire course, right? And yeah. you plan out the entire course. But in this one, actually, only gave you till the, till because there was like four camps in total. It was just, it was yeah. just purely for the next stage to the next camp. Interesting. Okay. That's right. It's pretty much just a day at a time, really. And, yeah. um, and you know, like fast forwarding through that, like going, essentially going into the last camp, I mean, we didn't know that was the last camp. Or we may have had some idea that it might have been, but you know, after leaving the last camp, we still didn't know if we had one, two, or even three days of racing to go. So our philosophy was really, and I'd raced in Fiji before, so I kind of knew what to expect more so than my teammates. But our, our philosophy was really just to look after ourselves and, and not, um, not get sick, not get injured, not get heat stroke. Uh, you know, not get dehydrated and just basically stay near the front of the race. And once we actually know where the finish line is, then figure out how we're going to cross it first. Um, so, so we were really just kind of doing our own thing for most of the race, um, you know, sleeping when it suited us and just going at a speed that was comfortable, comfortable for us, um, you know, not, not pushing anyone too hard. And then just ticking off the case, really, just just so and, until we actually knew what was going on. And as it transpired, we just found ourselves each day just pulling away from the field, really. Um, you know, without there being a goal. You know, we're very much just like we'll go at our speed, and if other people want to go faster than us, then that's you know good luck to them, sort of thing. But as it turned out, um, you know, we we spend most of that most of the race on our own. Yeah, there was a bit that you see in the show where you um, where you did have a slight nav error. I didn't know whether um, actually Chris was looking to do sort of a bit of a shortcut, but you seemed to, I think that was on like one of the first main treks. Yeah. What, were there many other nav errors and what happened there? Yeah, oh, it wasn't so much an error. It was just some quite ambiguous course, course instructions. So yeah. it, it, the course instructions said something to the effect of 
you know, go upstream, up the canyon, uh, retrieve the medallion, and then, you know, sort of 50 metres up from the medallion, you know, look for a trail that will take you towards, um, you know, towards the billy billies or something. So we, we, we kind of looked around. Um, we went up and down the riverbed a few times. We just couldn't find the trail. And there's no one around. You know, there's, I mean, there was a cameraman following us, but, you know, that, that, that there's no staff or there's no... So in the end, um, you know, we just go, well, how much time do we waste looking for this trail? I mean, or do we just do our own thing? And, and I think for us, we're so used to just doing our own thing. You know, we're just like, well, it's not that far. We might as well just, let's just, let's just boost over. And it actually turned out to be more of a shit fight than we hoped. But um, yeah, it was, I think we, we did lose some time, but no, no, no one was worried about it, you know, and it was a team decision. It yeah. was, um, yeah, it was just a bit of a weird thing. But after that, no, I don't, I'm not aware that Chris had any issues with navigation. Uh, oh, there was one, one on one other trek, probably the last big trek, similar, similar thing. Just at night time, we just got into an area where there was a lot more trails. The course instructions were a little bit ambiguous, and we we probably lost an hour, I think, just trying to find a trying trying to find the right trail. Um, but um, yeah, I, I suspect other teams behind us had that same problem, so it was probably leveled out, I think. Yeah, there's a bit in the in the show where you say. When we're finding it hard, or when you're finding it hard, you know that all of the other teams are going to be finding it hard at that point as well. And yeah. what, what were those points in the race? What were the points that, um, that you were really like in, in the pain cave, knowing that like, whoa, this is, um, this is full on? <laughs> I think, for memory, I think the only time <clears throat> where I really sort of thought, oh man, this is yeah, this is very, very unpleasant, was swimming in the lakes in the interior up in the high mountain there. Um, Once you scaled so the waterfalls. Yeah, yeah, it was just so cold. And yeah, just, just your body's run down as it is. And I mean, we did take some stuff to stay warmer, but we should have taken more really if we, if we wanted to just make the whole experience a bit more pleasurable. But that was What was the stuff you, you took to be warmer? Did you have like the well, merino on or...? No, we took some neoprene. We had neoprene um, yeah. long you know, tops and stuff on just next to our skin, which made a big difference. Um, Sophie didn't have one, I don't think. She she either forgot or or decided she was tough enough not to need one. <laughs> but um, which she was. I had said, I had said to the team that um, we did a similar thing in Eco in t- t- 2002. It turns out it was exactly the same thing, but I was suggesting that we take some inflatable mattresses. Um, you know, for swimming in the interior lakes and things. But, you know, at the time when you're in the transition area and, you, you know, you're loading your pack up and you think, oh, do I really need this? And the other thing is when you're down and down low, it's so hot. It's almost inconceivable to think that you actually could be cold. And the other yeah. thing is, is that um, we, as a team, we actually decided to do the rope section at night. So we basically did the math and thought we're going to be swimming in the daytime. So it might actually be quite nice. Um, it was actually real. And cold, it was right. still freezing. Yeah. I mean, that, that yeah. section appeared to like break most of the teams. Like uh, watching mm. it back, it just looks so, so harrowing. Um, yeah. A couple mm. of people getting hypothermic. And uh, I think like there was, um, yeah. How were your team feeling when they got off the, off the back and the hike out of those, uh, of those lakes? Was it, 
Uh, I'm sure you yeah. were good to get uh, happy to get that cup of coffee at the end. Yeah, that was great. Um, no, we're pretty good. I, th- I think I think we're all good, or we all know how important it is to stay positive and how much your mindset can actually control the outcome of those environments. Like I think if you sort of mentally succumb to those conditions, you will get spanked by them. Um, I, I, I've only seen the first two episodes of the show, but I have seen some of the trailers and I noticed in one of the trailers, you know, Sophie's actually making some joke about going for a morning swim and, you know, and, and that kind of sums it up really. Like even in the face of the adversity and the challenge of those races, you can expect one of my teammates to be taking the piss and making a joke about it. And, and that's, I think that's a coping mechanism. You know, if you can't laugh about it, then you kind of know that the, the challenge has beaten you. And, um, and, I, and I think for that reason, we get through those things fairly unscathed, you know, yeah um, there's yeah. one thing i notice about you like in um just whenever they capture you it's normally a sort of a, a transition station or it's not towards it and you seem to be always grazing always eating food <laughs> or at some point it's just uh, all on the move eating uh like what what's the is it just so happens that you always eat just when you're going into a transition area or you're just literally always eating when you're out on the course um, no, not always eating. Well, I bloody hope not. But um, <laughs> I, I think, I mean, I guess we are. And, you know, I mean, obviously not always eating, but I think we are always grazing. And, you know, for, for me, I, the way I work my nutrition in a race is pretty much hourly intakes of food. So I pretty much look at my watch and on the hour, I'm, I'm going, well, I need to be eating something whether it be a handful of nuts or, you know, a gel or some fruit or a sandwich or a freeze dry meal or what, whatever it is I feel like, maybe some cookies or lollies or whatever. But it's about keeping, keeping the energy going in. Um, obviously, we're burning so many calories that, um, you know, we keep fueling it in. And I'm, I'm of the belief, and I think my team are the same, that, you know, you, you do need to train yourself to eat and drink um, before you actually, your body's telling you to eat and drink um, in order to kind of have that sustained energy level. You know, if you're kind of just running yourself into the ground and go, oh, I should eat some food, get my energy back. Um, you know, I don't think you race as well. So we, I guess we just keep the tank topped up, you know, keep it as close to full yeah. as possible. Yeah, and, and it's also just noticeable the way, you, like, you're just doing it on the move. You're not stopping to eat or stopping to do something. And look, no. if that's kind of how you're, like, you seem to be just maintaining the speed at all times. Even when you're in a transition point and someone's trying to interview you, you're, like, you're doing something while you're interviewing. You're, like, you're multitasking constantly. I, I think there's <laughs> nothing more fucking annoying in when you're doing those sort of races and you've got someone that's flapping around, which is quite easy to do when you've not slept for four or five days. And you're, like, yeah, spend... Yeah. 10 minutes trying to get your like bike wheel in or something like it's so important just to be um just to be really quick in those transition points right yeah yeah that's right and you know i think at certain times of a stage yeah my philosophy on that is at certain times of a stage not always but you know you can have a teammate who's really working hard and and hurting a bit and suffering and may need a bit of help and you know they're, they're working really hard for the team to save sometimes only just a few minutes so it's kind of a um, blatant sort of disrespect, in my view, 
to then go into transition and just start wasting a whole lot of time when your teammate has kind of just basically visited their sort of deathbed to save time. And then you have someone who wants to kind of, you know, wash their feet and I don't know, you know, <laughs> do something fairly unnecessary in the, um, well, washing feet's actually probably a good thing to do, but you know what I mean? Like it's, um, I think if you're going to be, if you're going to be super efficient and, and, and be committed to saving minutes, um, you, you, you can't go wasting them. Otherwise, you know, everything's in vain really. And, uh, yeah, yeah. You, you, you talk about feet and actually I asked, um, Paddy, my uh, my teammate, I was like, "What? Any questions you got for for Nathan?" He's like, "What? What's the like feet strategy? Like, how do you, I mean?" And actually, in the show, you see that um, a Japanese team, two of the team members, get trench foot and get have to be um, uh, have to be um, helicoptered off the uh, off the side of the waterfall. Um, mm. wh- what do you like when you get a hot spots? Uh, like, I know you're a fast moving team, but you say, "Okay, we can stop, sort your feet out," and like, what we are, what what's your plan there? Yeah, I think for us, um, you know, we are very disciplined at preventative, um, you know, managing our feet preventatively. So a lot of it is, is that if, yeah, if, if something doesn't feel right, even if it's in the first 10 minutes of the race, stop and sort it out now. Because, you know, we know it's just not worth pushing on because we all know that foot-related problems, you know, 10 minutes now could save days at the other end of the race or could be the difference between finishing and not finishing. But I think in all honesty, you know, foot care really comes down to conditioning. And if you want to go into an adventure race and have have, um, minimal problems with your feet, you need to be going out and, and doing the things in training that you're going to expect to be doing in the race. And often that is long treks with wet feet. And if you're not doing yeah. that in training, then your body's got no chance of surviving that in a race. And uh, I, think yeah. we, I think we do very well uh, as a team with foot problems in races, meaning we don't have many or almost none because we all spend enough time out in the New Zealand outdoors with big packs on our backs with wet socks and wet feet all day long. And your body just condition, you, you just condition yourself to it. Your, t- your feet toughen up to it is there any other sort of um you, i mean do you get the pseudo cream on there or gurney goo any like recommendations of preventative stuff that you can do other than yeah, just training just, fucking yeah, hard just nothing no secret sort of stuff just you know we just hit it with um you know just antifungal and antibacterial products and and um you know just keep keep applying those during it through during the race like anti-friction anti-friction sort of creams and things and and, um, yeah. you know, and, 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 and to be honest, to a certain degree, we, and then we just hope for the best because I've done races before where we've done all those things and still had foot problems. So I don't know. I think, I think sometimes, you know, you can be a bit unlucky, I think. Yeah, I think like right footwear as well is also important. I think like there's nothing yeah. worse than like doing a hiker bike when you're um when you've got your cleats when you've got your your like mountain biking shoes yes. and you've got a a fifty k hiker bike over rocks with uh, yeah. um but uh, that's that was Reunion yeah. Island for you, wasn't it back in there? Um, yeah. One other question I had about Eco Challenge was just around the rules of the race because it seems slightly different from your usual uh, expedition adventure race in terms of you were allowed to. Actually actually get locals to carry your packs you're allowed to, like porters at one point and it and uh, mm. um and also like you you had a um 
you're able to have someone at the transition points at the main camps to be mm. able to like a support crew there as well. Mm. Um, yeah. Were there any other things that were drastically different from the normal, normal adventure race? No, not drastically different. Um, to answer those questions, yes, the uh, Eco Challenge this year did have a support person, the team's assistant crew, they called it. And uh, I, I guess that's not, you know, new to adventure racing. Um, you yeah. know, the use, that used to be the normal, and then they went away, they were essentially went to unsupported races. Eco decided to come back. Um, I, I mean, it's, it is good, I think. I mean, it helps the organisation, just having one person that, sort of overseeing you know each team and um, so that, that worked really well a friend of mine uh, mark came came with us to fiji he did an awesome job for us the um the the my understanding with support from locals was it was only allowed between a couple of checkpoints so there was basically one section of river trail that we went down where between two checkpoints um they basically said if you want to get porters, guides, people to carry your gear, if you can get a bike or a horse, it's kind of fair game. And I think this came about because in Fiji 2002, it got a bit out of control, the teams using locals and teams being guided and teams, um, you know, on horseback and uh, just, just basically getting help. And to be, our team didn't receive any help, I must admit. And I think going into this year's race, rather than trying to figure out how they could potentially control that or mitigate that in a section where we were going to basically be passing through lots of villages, they must have just decided that, well, let's just make it fair game. If um, yeah. Rather than a few teams kind of doing something that is essentially might be against the rules, let's just make it a free-for-all and let everyone basically do what they can. And, and it wasn't for that much part. It was only about 20K, I think. So my understanding yeah. is outside of outside of that time, you weren't allowed support from from the locals. The, the good thing with that is it just showed the interactions with the local Fijians, who just seemed amazing, and it just gave that <laughs> that extra element of it of being able to like you know it feel like you were a part of the local environment and be able to interact yeah. with them. Um, yeah. you did get help at one point though, mate. Um, and uh, and yeah, moving towards like the end of the race, back on the uh, you, you get to the last bit, which is a which is oh. an ocean paddle on the outrigger. Um, yes, yes. Pretty much like the last uh, last twenty or thirty k, and it's almost like bookending the race with a bit of dramatic uh, effect. I think yes, um, Mark yes. Burnett was uh, was slipping you some dollars there uh, again, but um, <laughs> but yeah, what what happened on the uh, on the last part of the race? Well, the short. I haven't seen that part of the show yet, obviously, but the short answer is our boat fell apart. And I mean, that's just one of those things. So yeah, I guess it was just, I mean, the, the reality is, is that the boats weren't in very good condition, the outriggers that we had to choose from. And I don't know if we were the only ones that actually had a boat come apart, but I'm sure, I'm sure there were teams that had some problems with the outriggers maybe leaking or, things inside the boat breaking or whatever. But that aside, uh, you know, I was surprised. Um, and I said this, I've said this before, you know, post the race, you know, like the Kamakau canoes, like they basically built like 66 brand new sailing canoes and the stand-up paddle boards, you know, they were brand new. Um, everyone got a brand new stand-up paddle board and the, raft, the rafts we had were amazing condition rafts. 
So getting close to the uh, outrigger section, I was getting really excited that we're going to be paddling some super duper, you know, four person outrigger racing canoe that's probably been shipped down from Hawaii. You know, this is probably going to be the best outrigger canoe I've paddled in my life. And we finished that stage and we walk into a paddock and look at the canoes. I was just like, oh my God, it was like a freaking outrigger canoe graveyard. And there was just all these <laughs> boats. And it was bizarre because the whole race up until that point had been this massive Amazon budget with, you know, chains of helicopters flying around and helicopters filming helicopters. And, you know, it was just off the charts. And then we, and then we go, choose your boat. And it's like, are you joking? It's like, so I wandered around for a bit and chose what I thought was the best boat there because we were the first team. But yeah, obviously I chose the wrong boat because uh, yeah, literally at night it just it, it just fell apart out of sea. I mean it was a rough sea. You know we were out there and we were hit by a storm, so we got pretty intense wind and waves. Um, you know for an hour or two, and I think it just put stress under that boat. That you know up until then that boat was probably only ever paddled in flat water. So yeah, so it's a bit of a bummer. Um, we end up probably losing. I don't know. I heard afterwards that we we, we we lost about five hours of forward moving moving on course the organization did bring us another outrigger canoe out but it just took them hours and hours to get a boat out to us and when they eventually got it to us they actually had us we were in the safety boat at that point and they actually had us go back down the course the way we had already come so we ended up having to paddle water that we'd already paddled before um so yeah it wasn't it wasn't a fun night it was uh, no, I bet. And once again, bobbing around in the water in a storm. Um, and uh, and yeah, like I heard, like uh, that's the most dramatic part of the show, like with Mayday, Mayday and you guys getting pulled up. Um, but like, it was good that you still, they still allowed you to finish. Because actually, like if you get, if you ask for help in a lot of races, they, uh, that's you, you're out basically, right? If you ask, if you ask for support, but given it was down to the dodgy boats that they had supplied you, I'm, uh, I'm glad they sort of, uh, they allowed you to finish the race and supplied you with another canoe. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think, um, I think, yeah, I mean, ultimately it's up to them what they chose to do, Eco, but my, my expectation would certainly be that you know, for the event, if they're supplying you equipment and, and the equipment they supply you fails, then they have to take some ownership for that. You know, like I think totally. it's totally fine if, if we turn up with crap bikes that we haven't maintained and they, and they fail, then it's like, well, that's your fault. You know, you brought that bike. But when you don't have any choice about the equipment you're using, um, no, I think the organisation have to, have to, because uh, I would never have turned up to a race with a boat in that condition, you know, so. Yeah. Um, no, I think that it's fair, but and and there was a natural penalty anyway. You know, like that essentially could have lost us the race. Uh, we just had, we were just lucky enough that we had enough lead at that point that um, we managed to do all that and still still get across the finish line. But you know, it could have been different if had the other teams been closer. Then um, yeah, that would have been that would have been their race. Yeah, well, I think you you still managed to have a few hours on the Canadians and then the uh, and then the other Kiwi team. Um, but yeah, well, like incredible, incredible performance. Um, you uh, you mentioned you've watched back a couple of the shows, but there's been a, I mean, I've just absolutely loved watching it. I like <laughs> binged it in two days, and it's uh, it was just incredible. And um, uh, and I think um, 
yeah, there's been some sort of like mixed feedback. I think when everyone knows someone that's in the race and, and I'd interviewed Bern Dornham last year and she was in the Thunderbolt AR team yeah. and, um, and, and they had a great story as well. Like the twins, her and Liz, and like, I, I was expecting them to sort of, uh, to freak, uh, to feature quite a lot. And it's always a bit disappointing when you don't see someone, you know, being, uh, mm. uh, being sort of like featured in the content. Um, but there's mm. 66 teams, right? They can't cover every team. And it's, it's often the way that they I'll do the very pointy end and then the the real stories of struggle and suffering are at the uh, uh, uh the people that are bringing up the rear so you've got to understand mm. that they're going to sort of spend most of their time covering those teams mm-hmm. yeah that's right that's right i mean i have seen you know some of the comments um that you know on the, the world's toughest race um facebook group or whatever it is and and yeah i, I understand where some of the people are coming from you know like they you know, they raced well and, and they were up there and, and they didn't sort of get any coverage. But I, I think I think you just have to step back and look at the bigger picture of this event. And if you sort of said that Eco Challenge was purely a race and that they their aim was to make a 10-hour documentary of an adventure race, then you'd start watching those series and go, well, they'll, they'll probably failed at this, you know, because... Um, they're not actually focusing on the race that much. But if you sort of step back and said they're going to make a 10-hour documentary of, um, you know, of an adventure race, but they're going to look for as many kind of human interest stories as possible and engage an audience that is actually not interested in adventure racing per se because they've probably never heard of adventure racing before until they actually tune into the show. Then I think that's where uh, eco that's where they succeed in hitting that audience, and you know we were pretty lucky. Like all the teams were paid to be there, so you know, all the teams would have profited from being at the race. Um, so you're essentially sort of giving up that right to you know, no one had to have sponsors, and you're sort of giving away. Um, those rights for them. I mean, they, 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 they put on a race. We all went and had an awesome race, an awesome adventure. And then it's up to them really how they want to use that footage to, to grow the sport and to grow the show and ultimately uh, to make it happen again. Um, so in order for us to go out and do another eco challenge, um, you know, if it means that they run a show that focuses on, teams that are down the back of the pack or like coming last or whatever it is. I, I personally don't have any problem with that. Um, and, and I think I've been around the sport long enough to know that the downstream effects of eco ripple out and that's where the advantage, the benefits come. And, you know, my personal example of that is, is that, you know, I've been sponsored by Seagate for, you know, for a long time. I mean, Seagate would be the probably the most, the biggest, yeah, sponsorship there's probably ever been in event racing period. And that sponsorship pretty much moved into Team Avea. It was essentially just a, a bit of a transfer within a corporate, but essentially our sponsor we've had a sponsor for corporate sponsor for 20 years. Well, Seagate only got interested in event racing because of Eco Challenge. I mean, it was a couple of the executives saw Eco Challenge on TV and said, We need to get a team in this race. And then that grew to um quite a few of the Seagate executives actually wanting to do event racing themselves. But, you know, without Eco Challenge, you know, we wouldn't have had Seagate sponsorship. And, and that's been huge for, for Kiwi adventure racing and, 
and, and many other things. So I just think, yeah, sure, I understand people are disappointed they didn't, you know, they didn't get coverage they perhaps hoped for on the show. But, yeah, I just don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, the main thing is, is that the, the show, you know, attracts a much, much and bigger reaches audience. a wider audience. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. 100% with you. I mean, I, I've been, um, I've only really got into adventure racing properly in the last sort of four or five years. And, um, uh, and for me, it's the purest form of endurance sports. And I mm. think that, um, that, that it needs to ha- it needs to have a resurgence and this could definitely be the catalyst to be able to do mm. that i mean i hope that it just gets the um it, it just sort of captures the wider audience so that because i mean mate no offense but you're you're getting on a bit right we need <laughs> we we need yeah. a, we need new blood to come into the sport right um mm. and um and so yeah what what do you think is going to be like the future of the sport well already i, I mean i've just seen I know, i've actually had a lot of people emailing me and messaging me um, since I've been watching the show asking, how do I get into the sport? Where do I start? You know, what, what is the thing? And um, you know, they, these are people that are obviously super excited, but don't actually know that there's, there's all these layers of the sport that already exists. So all they need is to be directed to, you know, go and join this club, go and do this race, go and get these skills. And, and this is happening I think, and, and quite a few bubbles around the world right now, that people are, are coming in contact with the show and getting really inspired and want to be part of it. And um, so I think that I think the next step is just making sure that, the that you know, in the different areas around the world where this energy is, is that those people are being welcomed and being directed and, and encouraged to sort of take part. And I'm sure they are because the whole of interesting community is a sort of welcoming group of people. And then I think, you know, there'll just be stuff that'll just happen as a result of that. Um, I don't think kind of sending negative stuff to the production team about, you know, they've done it all wrong is that helpful. Um, especially if you want to do eco again, it's probably, it's probably the best way to get yourself crossed off the list. But um, I mean, everyone, everyone's welcome to their own their view, but I just hope that people can just see beyond um, you know, the, the, the kind of the short, short term sort of stuff to the bigger picture stuff. And, um, and I think, I think probably even bigger than, than us just welcoming all these people, new, new people into the sport that has all of a sudden sort of become, um, I guess, in contact with it. I do think the sport at some stage in the future does have to probably start being a little bit more grown up about how it's managed and, you know, I think if you look at any sport that's kind of managed, um, you know, essentially professionally, commercially, um, yeah, you're starting to sort of talk about, you know, federations and um, you know, organised governing bodies and 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 getting sort of countries working together a bit more. I, I, I guess I'm just my main view of it is, is obviously from in New Zealand, and we're doing amazing things in New Zealand, but we're not actually get. Or, we're not actually recognised by the government as an official sport, and and because of that, we don't we're not so we're not we can't get any funding from the government. Um, none of our teams at adventure racing, whatever level, can be nominated for sort of sports awards, um, team of the year, any of that stuff. Um, because you know, there's there's a lot. Of, the, the sport is not you know it, 
it's not when we go to the world champs, it's not an official world champs, you know, per se. It's a, essentially a commercial yeah. kind of enterprise that's named the world champs. So I, I think all that's great. I think it's all part of a developing sport. But at some point, I think it, goes, it needs to go, right, the sport's been around now for 20 years. We've got major events. We've got these teams. We've got all these things happening. We actually need to bring all these things together and get this sort of stamp of approval and say, right, event tracing is an official sport. This is the, you know, this is your governing body. I mean, I, I guess cycling, I came from cycling before I, before I was an event tracer and, you know, UCI are the governing body of, of sport and under UCI, you know, there's mountain biking, cyclocross, track, road, BMX. Um, there's all the components of cycling, but they all come under one umbrella organization. And I think, you know, I like to think that at some point in the future, event racing will have that and that that'll just, that'll just help tie everything together. Well, I can't think of a better ambassador once you've like hung up your, uh, your racing boots to, to take <laughs> on that responsibility, Nathan. <laughs> I think you've just nominated uh, yourself over the global, uh, yeah. Um, but mate, you're, you're like, you're, I mean, my, my, um, my race buddy, um, Paddy is like, he, he's, uh, he's passed the, uh, the half century. Um, it's coming up soon for you. There's still a bit of, there's still plenty of racing in the legs there. What, what, what's, uh, what's in the future for you personally as it, as it comes I mean, to racing? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, as you probably know, I've tried to retire a few times. I, I sort of struggled. But, yeah, I'm, I am. I'm getting on. I mean, I'll be 49 next year. And, um, you know, my body's still doing all right, but I don't have the speed and strength I used to. And, and that's just the truth. And I'm okay with that, you know, like, Life, life kind of goes on. I'm sorry, I laugh because you just, you still absolutely smash it. But I suppose you just look at, is it, you look around at your teammates like Soph, Stu and, uh, and Chris yeah. and go, oh, bloody hell, I'm struggling to keep up with these dudes now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, I, and the other thing is, is that I'm, I'm, I have no qualms admitting that there is, there's 10, probably 20 guys in New Zealand that, will go, that are faster and stronger than me. They could slip into that team. And, um, yeah. and and pick it up a gear. Now, on saying that, I do know in a race like Eco Challenge, that's quite a technical race. You know, I bring a whole lot of skills and experience that those other guys wouldn't bring. But there does come a point for my teammates um, where, <laughs> you know, the pros cons of having the old guy um, start to kind of get less and. At some point, we need to have that discussion whether I whether I officially just kind of break myself away and say, look, I'm refusing to race for you guys for your own benefit, or they actually, you know, collaborate and get their shit together and say, you're not actually racing with us anymore. Sorry, mate. <laughs> Which I won't have any mate, problem I, with. I can't see that. I can't see that happening. I can't see that happening. Um, well, Nathan, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. Like I could, um, yeah, I could like chat to you for hours and I would love to get you, um, get you back on the podcast again <laughs> soon. Um, good, uh, good luck for, um, for organizing the, uh, the spring, uh, the, the spring race. Fingers crossed it goes ahead, mate. Um, I, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Like hopefully New Zealand will come out of uh, lockdown again soon. It seems to be pretty well under control, but, um, yeah like really congrats on an amazing uh amazing eco challenge hopefully we'll see you in the in next year's edition as well but um yeah, yeah. yeah plenty more racing in those legs yet i think mate totally, totally. yeah no, thanks scott and no, thanks for uh for taking the time i mean you know people like yourself who are 
who are doing podcasts and putting energy back into the sport. I mean, that all adds up to the to the whole. So, you know, it's great to have people contributing as you are and, and helping out and being passionate about it. So, so no, I really appreciate that as well. And, and hopefully, you know, people will enjoy listening to our chat. Well, yeah, we've got lots of like, uh, we, we have lots of ultra racers, uh, ultra runners on the, um, and, uh, and mountain bikers and stuff. Hopefully they decide to sort of pull, pull their, um, yeah, energy towards adventure racing. And this inspires a few more people to get to a start line <laughs> and, uh, and hopefully see you at one soon. So yeah, nice yeah. one, Nathan. A- absolute pleasure, sir. Thank you. Come on. Cheers. Thank you. It's like the truthful story of they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Hey, Mr. Rick Stockfish, how are you doing, sir? Good, Scott. How are you? Pretty, uh, pretty keen to start some adventure racing, I must say. Yeah, it's definitely um, piqued the interest of a lot of people after uh, the Eco Challenge World Toughest Race, and uh, and it's definitely scratched an itch for a lot of people that have have done adventure racing. Um, but yeah, you've had, you, you're only a few episodes into to watching the show. What's uh, what, what what do you feel so far? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to ration it out, not binge it like you did. But um, yeah, loving it. I mean, I, I think, um, to be honest, I think I picked, I, I'd heard quite a lot about it from you and from from listening to an interview with Byrne. But um, I wonder if maybe they could have done a little bit more to set the context. Like, I don't know if you just tuned in for the first time that you'd realise this is the first time there'd been an eco challenge in nearly two decades. Um, and quite what a big deal that was and um, and who all these teams were. And the fact that, like, you know, as, as Nathan says towards the end of the interview, that... Um, you know, it's, it, it, there's an entire community around this and all these events around the world. And okay, maybe it's not recognized as an official sport, but there's a real history behind it. And um, a bit of context around it might have been helpful. But yeah, I mean, I guess they throw you in at the deep end and you just kind of figure it out as you're watching. Yeah, I think as the show goes on, they do um, they do go back. Cause there's a lot of people that have come back for um, the race almost like 18 years ago, back in 2002, uh, Nathan obviously being one of them. Um, and it's amazing how like, he was pretty much dominant then. I'm not sure if he won back in 2002, because obviously that was in Fiji as well. Yeah, I think I they think, did, think right? Did actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, look... I, I, I've like known of him for for quite a few years. I've obviously been um, into adventure racing for for quite a few years. But like the guy is just the and not and not just him. It's the team, right? It's like they've got the best navigator in in, in the business in Fawn, and they've um they're um they've just been so unbelievably dominant. And uh, and yeah, I was just thinking like uh, when I invited him, like, I messaged him, and like the the theme of Endurance Asia is ordinary people, extraordinary feats, right? And he's probably and I was like, look, you might not be that ordinary though; it doesn't really count for you, but we'll make an exception. Um, he he's he's probably the um, I suppose the most successful athlete we've had on, and we've had some amazing adventurers and everything, but in terms of just purely dominance in their sport. He is, um, he's definitely, uh, he's definitely up there. He's definitely the one, right? He's just, uh, as they say, the Michael Jordan of, uh, of adventure racing, which he was, he, he took quite humbly, but. Yeah. I mean, it was like, it was like having Killian on or something for trail running, wasn't it? But yeah, I mean, I think just the, the sort of multidisciplinary ability, um, and you, you know, you, you've asked quite a lot of the guests who you think or, or which sport you think produces the best all round athletes. And I think adventure racing has probably got a pretty good claim to that title um you know you look at you look at the, the set of skills that you need to be able to trail run mountain bike at a really high level kayak sail um 
and, and do that in, in really harsh conditions and over really lengthy periods of time. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know who I'd put up against him from previous guests. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking, and you know, I'm absolutely love mixed martial arts. And I think what I love about mixed martial arts, I've never, I've been a bit of a fan of boxing in the past, but in the past, but um, what I love about mixed martial arts, apart from like the discipline, the honor, the, the amount of training these guys have to do, but it's more just tying together all of these different disciplines and the skill level required to be able to do that. And that's really what I find with adventure racing. It's like the just being like a master of all trades because let's be honest like you don't win those races in that level of dominance unless you are brilliant at everything and i mean like i mean he's was sort of olympic level mountain cross-country mountain biker um and then add sort of like paddling like i think any discipline if he was to race at you know he's like coast to coast he's won a few times and um uh, any discipline you were throwing him in at he would be uh he would be up there um and just like properly humble with it. It's just got that Kiwi. Yeah, this is, you know, so I just do. This is just like, you know, just a weekend out with it. I like spend our time out with the kids anyway. I'm always out there. Yeah, we were talking about it, weren't we? I think you, if, you, uh, if you had to pick a nation to go up against any other in, in, in sort of endurance or any challenge like that, it's probably, probably got to be the Kiwis. But yeah, I mean, Mark was saying that when we spoke to him, wasn't it, Mark Agnew, that it'd be interesting to see how, uh, how a decathlete holds up against some of these sporting people. And in a way, that's what adventure racing is, right? Like, like you're saying, he's got to be elite at, you know, many, many different disciplines um, and doing, doing them kind of back to back on not a lot of sleep in, in, you know, pretty wild terrain. Yeah. It's really, really. Important. Yeah. We, we've had some tough Kiwis on, I mean, not least Will, Will Hayward, um, who, uh, yeah, did 56 hours in uh, the big dog's, backyard coming uh coming second last year um grant axe rawlinson's kind of like a a world first kayak or like rowing from singapore to to australia and then he's about to to row the ditch as well and um and then red like kayaking the full um yeah the full circumference of new zealand um how else have we had on? We've had another couple of Kiwis, I think another one or two, but they are all just made of different stuff. They are, I think it's just the, the rugged outdoor nature of New Zealand just means, means they're kind of bred with this just, um, yeah, durability. Um, and, uh, and yeah, like for anyone want, like I recommend listening back to any of those podcasts, like including, uh, yeah, Grant is a, uh, Axe Rawlinson is a, is a, is a legend. Um, but yeah, talking of uh, podcasts to listen back to, anyone that's like, this has piqued their interest in adventure racing, um, listening back to Burn, I actually listened back to it the other day and, and just read her race report because she, she came seventh in the, in the Eco Challenge um, as, with the Thunderbolt AR team. Um, just like unbelievable performance. I mean, they were, they were third at one point and, and they were the only team, I think other than the uh, Indian team that had two women and two blokes in the team, so like properly mixed. Um, and so the twin sisters, Liz and Byrne, uh, amazing performance. That's worth giving a listen back to. Well, yeah, and I remember, I think it was the interview with, uh, with Ryan, Ryan Blair, where, where we were talking about why there isn't more adventure racing. And then I think, I think it did sort of peak around that early sort of 2000s. Um, and then it went away for a while. And I remember reading like, I forget who it was, but some of the like, who, who went, some people who went on to become fairly elite level trail runners had, a, had got their start in adventure racing and that's where all the money was and then it kind of pivoted towards trail running and that just exploded in 
well, what, yeah, this, the, the, the 2010s, I guess. But um, you look at Eco Challenge and you sort of realize why the, just the logistics of putting on an event like that, what it takes. Like, I mean, and it's no wonder they wanted the money of Amazon behind them because um, it's not something you can just pull together with, with a few mates. Yeah, and, and actually, Ryan Blair one's another really good one to listen back to. I mean, he's just got an incredible story. Um, and I mean, he he commented that you know, it probably wasn't the world's toughest race, um, just in terms of uh, the, I mean, it, it was difficult, but in terms of exhibition, uh, um, the, these kind of adventure races that... Um, that are on like multiple days. I think the Reunion Island um, one, which was the World Champs, ARWS World Champs, as an expedition adventure race, that was probably, I think, one of the toughest ones to ever be run. But I think it just refers to the concept of expedition adventure racing as being the world's toughest race, you know. Soddle this like uh, like Marathon de Sable or any of these like multi-stage races where you get to put your feet up in a nice cosy tent at the end of the day before you get out the next day. Like this is it. This is like, legit you are up against it for like five six seven days solid yeah and i mean i'm sure like i'm sure the purest in the sport or some of them at least probably are kind of nitpicking some of that show um and even things down to the title but i mean for a for, a, for an outsider who's sort of semi-interested like i was going in you know if they build it as the world's fourth toughest race i probably wouldn't have watched um you know i mean it's it's i think that that that's the idea right and i i think i'd forgive them any sort of any sort of marketing stuff they did around it and and the way they told the story i think um yeah it's it's hard to kind of criticize that really because you're trying to you know if if the goal here is to resuscitate adventure racing for a, a truly global audience then that's kind of what you need to do a hundred percent yeah, I mean, there's been a, a bit of a pushback from the adventure racing community of, you know, it's covering the back of the packers too much. You know, I also didn't think it, it didn't actually, you, you didn't really know how people were tracking through the race, who was winning, because that's the great thing about being able to follow adventure racing is like dot watching. It's like the, the, uh, the best of dot watching where you can just follow it for a few days and you're like, you know how everyone's ranking, but it was hard to know really how the, how the pointy end of the field was, was um, stacking up against each other during the race. Obviously you knew where um, team New Zealand and Gippsland and um, and the, the Canadian team. But, um, but yeah, there's a bit of complaints like, that sort of like the top 10 weren't really covered enough um, to know exactly how they were ranking. And I actually, but the whole, as you say, the whole sort of concept of this is to be able to pique the interest of the average couch potato that's watching it, you know, and, and inspire them to get out on their mountain bike or get out on a paddle board. And, uh, and that's why they followed a lot of the back of the Packers. I mean, there's a team that's sort of, able ables i think because the uh, guy if actually that was another team where he had his two daughters on there and um and look they've never raced for that like i mean he had i think he had raced in the 2002 but um you know they're always going to find it tough but you know a lot of people watch that and go well if they can get to the start line then why can't i and uh and yeah i think that's it's got to be great for the sport you know and um and the more people that come into the sport the more money that goes into it uh the more potential prize money that goes into there for the potential winning teams um, and the fact that nathan is 48 and still winning it goes to show that 
it needs some new blood in <laughs> in the uh, in the sport. I mean, no offense to him, and he'll probably he's probably got a good five years left in him. I don't know whether he's going to take advantage of them, but um, I mean, my my race buddy Paddy Pat. Pat Meldrum, he's uh, you know, he's he's over fifty now, but just uh, strong as an ox, amazing nav. And the reason he's so good is just that he's raced a lot, and he's like as, you know, the, the people that are really good are just um, that just methodical. They just know how to just go through the logistics of these type of races and just know how to keep moving. And uh, whereas I think a lot of the people will get to the start line, get start line fever, and just go out too quick, and then horribly blow up and then and then fall to pieces when they get lost yeah and i just think i don't know like the if the, if they'd made the show only about the top five or ten teams it's just such a more niche show and in, and to be honest i'm yeah. sure that sort of stuff i mean as you say the people who follow it that closely anyway are dot watching when it's on um you know if that's what they've done everyone would watch it and think well fuck there's no way i'm not i'm not the next nathan so it's not the sport for me whereas now you look at it, you go actually with a bit of training and, and surrounding yourself with the right people and learning from them you know there will be a lot of people worldwide who might think i can have a crack at something like this even if it's not a full eco challenge um yeah i think um, yeah well I, i've been like there's a facebook group that i'm a member of like adventure racer finder to be able to find teammates and just it's blown up over the past week from people going oh i'm interested in getting involved like is anyone in this city and is up for training so uh, it bodes well it bodes well you know like if we get more teams i mean last right time i raced xpd there were only like 25 teams in there 30 teams um and uh and craig the race director of that like and louise um you know they need more they need more teams like in there to be able to for it to be able to um be a sustainable and and, and growing business and encourage race directors to keep on putting on these races so and, and um, get some, yeah non-kiwis at the point at the end of the field um <laughs> yeah. but I, but talking about race directing and adventure race mate I, we've talked for a while about doing an endurance asia challenge and obviously covid has sort of put paid to that for we were planning it to do it around this time july august but i reckon yeah it hopefully the uh this sort of like in in the next few months we can i've already got a route planned in my head and i i think we can get 20 teams or two involved and i think we can make it pretty tough i'm uh um yeah i've got some good ideas around it singapore's toughest race let's do it singapore's toughest race yeah let's get it done let's get it done um but there was a there was another uh, unbelievable endurance performance this weekend not in asia but you've got to call it out mr john kelly um doing yeah, the uh, anyone, doing the grand round yeah anyone, anyone that uses the pennine way as their warm-up you know the sort of training run for something bigger is uh is, is, is doing pretty well but yeah what so what's that yeah it was the three big fell running rounds in the uk back to back cycling between them yeah just astonishing so, so yeah it's the bob graham the paddy buckley and i always forget the name of the one in scotland but um Ram, something ramsey but, isn't it ramsey round yeah which is actually the shortest of the three but has the most elevation like obviously being around ben nevis and um and glenn nevis i think it finishes on but um to cycle between the two um i mean it's just uh i don't know if you saw any of the um the clips on twitter or whatever but he was pretty broken by the end of it like just um yeah second time he's attempted it and i think the weather was uh was like classic british i think in in the middle of it i think the um the um the paddy buckley i think it was that was like pretty wet for him 
He's, um, um, he's a Barclay finisher, right? I think so. He is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, incredible, incredible performance. Um, and look, that's a you know, there's a real sort of adventure racing part to it, right? There's a yeah. I mean, although it's a it's a clear route, you know, you pretty much it's fell running, right? You can go the only as long as you get up to the top of the fair, each fell, you can go your own way up there. So there's a lot of nav, especially through the night in there, was be um, be pretty tough. But um, yeah, what an unbelievable performance. Yeah, I'm quite looking forward as well to that totally FKT. There's, uh, I don't think it'll be out till October time, but um, the there's a there's a documentary on the Pennine Way uh, FKT attempt from both him and uh, and Damien Hall. I'm quite a, a, a quality name as well, isn't it? Totally FKT. Yeah. Is, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, like you said, like it's been really it's been really great seeing all these records come down, and all, or even just the attempts on them, and you know. <laughs> obviously everyone's hoping that races get restarted sooner rather than later but to some extent I hope some of this continues and I hope people start or just continue kind of pushing their, their local routes and um, and just, just you know exploring their own back door because it's been really inspiring seeing that happen yeah I don't know I'm just actually reading uh, Rise of the Ultra Runners now I finally got re- got around to like picking it up off the stack after speaking to Mark Agnew the other week but um but yeah there's there's no UTMB points in uh in in FKT so uh so yeah I don't know whether they'll come back but um no no I I, I mean as we've talked about before it's it's all about because the uh because the trails are there um Nice one, Mr. Stockfish. Uh, I absolutely loved that chat with Nathan. I like. Uh, I felt like an absolute fanboy speaking to him. Was, uh, um, but yeah, what um, what an incredible athlete. And uh, and yeah, enjoy the rest of uh, uh, watching the world's toughest race. It's going to be back next year as well. They've got it in Patagonia. Um, so yeah, it's going to be. A, hopefully, this is going to be an every year thing now, and the the sport is going to be back up to what it was in the uh, early two thousands. Yeah, and we'll post in the show notes, we'll post some links for people who want to find out more about the Adventure Race World Series and, you know, what you can do <clears throat> within Asia. I mean, um, yeah, it's uh, hopefully the start of uh, big things to come. Yeah, there's going to be, so there's, um, well, it was supposed to be in June, but there's going to be Sarawak um, in Borneo going ahead next year again. Um, yeah, it talked about there was one in Hokkaido, there's going to be one in Japan, but I see. I see a few races going to be picking up in uh, in Asia over the next uh, next couple of years. Um, yeah, same. The Sabra uh, Adventure Challenge is. Uh, hopefully, this will convince them to bring that back as well because that's an amazing, that's a brilliant race. Although not expedition style, it's it's um, multi stage. But uh, but yeah, hopefully they'll uh, inspire them to 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 bring it back. The uh, the guys that do the um, uh, most beautiful thing in uh, in Borneo. Yeah, and it sounds like they're still hoping that race, the TMBT, is going to go ahead this year. But let's see. Um, again, it might be one of these locals-only events, but they're still they're still hoping that that's the the season finisher for well, sort of mid mid season, I guess now for Asia Trailmaster because they've combined their two seasons. But um, let's see. And it's September October time, isn't it? Yeah, we're we're getting Chris on soon, actually, for Chris Vanderveld uh, Vanderveld from um, from Asia Trailmaster, so he can talk about what's happening with the with the the combining the two uh, the two years to make it one season but um beautiful nice one mr rick stockfish we've got a couple of really good ones coming down uh, over the next couple of weeks um we talked about amazing kiwis so lynn patterson red um we've got coming soon and uh, and uh, moira physio a uh, youth here in singapore with some really interesting take on um 
and advice as um, from, from a top top physio. Yeah, looking forward to it. Talk to you soon, Scott. Nice one. Cheers, Rick. Tell the truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad.